Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hi, it's Kirk from the Business of Software conferences. Welcome to the Boss podcast. This week, we have Natalie Nagel, CEO and co-founder of Wildbit. Natalie is striving to prove that you can grow an extremely profitable business while operating flexible work patterns, an enjoyable work-from-anywhere environment and staying small. Being an advocate of remote working since 2000, with one-third of the team working in Philadelphia and the rest dotted around the world, Wildbit's culture, communication and process are specifically tailored for a remote team. In her Boss USA talk from 2017 called Keeping Fun in Your Business Life, Natalie asks the important question, why are you running a business? Natalie will return to Boston in March 2020 at the Europe Conference and more details can be found at businessofsoftware.eu. Now sit back and enjoy the talk. I am Natalie. I'm the co-founder and CEO of the best small little business in the world. I know I'm biased. Uh, we're a mom and pop shop. I actually run the business with my husband, Chris, who started it in 2000. We turn 17 next month, which is crazy. Um, I work with 26 of the best human beings ever. They're the nicest, kindest really special. And we're based in Philly. We have um, almost a little bit more than half remote team all over the place. And we've built some cool products. Some probably, hopefully, you've heard of. Beanstalk is almost 10. So we've also been in the SaaS business for a really long time. We have a product called Postmarks and Transactional Email. We have a little robot that helps you ship your code. And we have a new product on the way. You know, it's exciting. But what's special about Wild, but I think is not really the products. Um, I think more there's some more important things like we're really happy, profitable, growing, bootstrapped, and having a lot of fun. But happy and fun weren't always something that was going on. It wasn't something that came naturally, especially in the last four years. I feel like I'm just piggybacking off of Jason's talk. But um, we come from a generation of companies that remembers when apps were launching maybe monthly, not hourly. There was no product hunt. Uh, sales, marketing were really bad words. And not talking to your customers was something that you really bragged about. That was like a badge of honor. <laughs> so we've had to make some attitude adjustments since then. But I'll tell you a really scary story, a little sad. Um, in 2013, while it was mainly Beanstalk, uh, that was our main product. It made all the money. It was growing really well consistently. We knew exactly what it was going to make next month. It was profitable, provided for Chris and I, provided for our team, and it enabled us to build a new product. We were playing around with Postmark. And then something bad happened. It looked like that. And what happened to Beanstalk's growth was that it stopped growing. It basically started to plateau. And that is scary for obvious reasons, and none of, not least of which is that we have a team to support, a new product to build, and oh my god, this was going to be the end. I know now the plateaus are actually normal, and people just don't talk about them. But at the time, we thought there was absolutely no way of getting out of this. The thing about Beanstalk is that we, I always say this to people, like growth happened to us. I don't know how to reproduce it. Because we launched a product, a really good product, at a really good time for the right customer. And then we just kept building a great product, and then fixing it and making it better. And customers kept talking about it, and it worked. And we did have partnerships, and we did have some integrations, and we probably did some sales. But Chris and I never set out to grow a product. Our entire team was product, engineering, and design, and some support. 
And so when a plateau happened, when that happened, we had absolutely nothing in our arsenal. And so we did something really stupid. We just started doing what everybody else was doing. And so this is like 2013-ish, and everybody's talking about a 30-day trial. So we were like, okay, that's it. It's going to double revenue. We spent months implementing a 30-day trial. Did not double revenue. Our revenue actually took a dip. We started looking into buying ads because ads were working. But we didn't stop to realize that just because we all run software businesses doesn't mean we sell to the same audience. And so, yes, you can run a software business that sells to plumbers, and maybe ads work for you. But when you're selling to software developers, it's probably not going to work the same way. And so we were running in a million directions. And I realized in hindsight now that was because we really didn't know why we were growing. Like, why did we have to get out of a plateau? We were profitable. We were OK. Lots of happy customers. What was the reason that we had to get out of it? For us, it was we just had to grow, right? Because a business has to grow at all costs. Like, just do it. And so it didn't work, obviously. And things got really. Well, I'll get a little personal, but things got really scary and really sad and dark at home. And so at this point, Chris really hated work. He really didn't want to come to the office. There was nothing, no excitement, no like jumping out of bed. We agreed, kind of, you know, like we talked about this morning, like Chris agreed to take a month off. He went to Bhutan. He hiked with his dad. That really helped. I thought I was holding down the fort. I thought it was OK until kind of doing dishes one day after dinner and realized like I didn't know what a panic attack was <laughs> until you actually experience one. So I was probably a little bit depressed, too. And the reason is, uh, is because you know, we lost control. We didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't know how to get out of it. But when I started, I said, you know, we're happy. We're profitable. And we're growing. So clearly, there's a happy ending. Or maybe it's more like a happy beginning. But we did get out of it. And the way we got out of it was first acknowledging that we were in a bad spot. And then we did something that seems really obvious in hindsight. But we asked ourselves like, a really simple question. And I was like, why are we doing this? Turns out, we got ourselves into this really dark time by not asking ourselves that question for a while. Like, what was the reason that we decided to take that risk, right? Decided to go in and start a business and hire people and do all these things that we were doing, spend tons of money, right? And so we did. We, we sat down and said, why are we doing this? And you know, we started with thinking about like, what were those reasons in 2000 when Chris convinced his dad to drop out of college, to pay for programming classes. Why did he start Wildbit? And why were we running it today? And they were really simple reasons. Obviously, financial security, right? And that means a lot of things to a lot of people. For us at the time, it was things like being able to travel, right? That was important to us. And then there was, can we control that financial security, right? Can we control our future? Can we be in control of how we got to where we want to go? Can we prove that we can do it? There's an ego in entrepreneurship that I think is really OK. And we wanted to prove that, yeah, we can. And we wanted to really love coming to work every day. Like, what was the point otherwise? If we didn't jump out of bed and be really excited and have a really good time, there was no reason to do it. At no point in that dialogue was it like, let's build something and flip it. Like, that was not the point. We did not just set out to be rich. Like, if I wanted to be rich, I would not sell to software developers. It was. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was all of those things combined, right? Obviously, we want to have money, but like all of those things combined were the reason. And so it's important. We all have to ask ourselves this question and ask it constantly. Why are we doing this? We, as, as founders, why are we running this business? What's the point? Do those reasons match what they did before? 
life's change, maybe those do shift, but that's okay. And so what got us in that dark place is that as we got bigger, we created more and more distance between those original reasons or those reasons that mattered to where we were today. And it's not intentional, right? Like I didn't set out to say like, I don't wanna do, you know, like we, clearly something was pushing us there. And it's this like really powerful force that in the last year I've started to kind of affectionately name the beast. And the beast is somebody we are all extremely familiar with. It turns out that the force, the strong force that pushes against you to away from all those reasons of why you want to run a business in the first place is actually your business. Because there's this weird thing that happens as you're growing. When you're not looking, the business, it starts to breathe on its own, starts to kind of take life, starts to try to be real, and it starts asking you for things. It becomes an insatiable beast with a never-ending appetite. The illustrations are amazing, I know. <laughs> I didn't do them, I swear. But it, it has a never-ending appetite. It always wants more, right? Wants to be bigger, wants to be, grow faster, wants to grow at all costs, it wants to be more important. Not by accident, because we created it this way. We asked it to be this. And it becomes the voice in your head, the voice that says faster, more, bigger. That's the voice. Hire more, get funding, whatever. And it does it so simply, it just changes the conversation. That initial sentence that you used to ask yourself was, what do I need? Or what does my team need? What do I want? And now all you're doing is saying, what does the business need? And that simple change has a dramatic impact because the beast doesn't care about you or what you want. The beast wants to be bigger and fatter and, and, and you know, more important. But you, you might want to grow and be bigger. All those things are true for you as well. But there's more to that. You might want to be happy or have fun or be content. Or, you know, all, all those things are really important to you as well. I uh, was having a conversation with some great friends who run businesses much larger than ours. And there was an important decision that had to be made. And we were all sitting around the table, and we were all just kind of talking. And it was like, what's better for the business? What does the business need? How is this going to make an impact on the business? It took us forever to realize that nobody had turned to the founders and said, like, what do you guys want? <laughs> like, what will make you happy? And I promise you that the minute that conversation changed, the decision direction changed as well, right? We have to remember that the business is not real. And that's what Chris and I had to start reminding ourselves. We invented it, right? In and of itself, it is not real. But it enables something that is. And what is real is the people. You and me, right, founders, we are real. We matter. Our team is real, and it matters. Your customer, absolutely real, definitely matters. And if you can get it right, you maybe even have a community that's real, that is impacted by your business, and it matters, right? So when Chris and I were in that kind of dark place and we were trying to get ourselves out of it and we realized that we were allowing the business to drive a lot of our decisions with no purpose or intention, we had to focus on what's real. For us, real meant focusing on the people in the business. For us, that meant we had to focus on ourselves and on the team first. And so the biggest challenge, I think, <laughs> in growing your business and moving forward is to tame the beast from, be from becoming that voice in your head the one that controls you, the one that doesn't care about you or what you want, because your reasons for running the business matter. And that's how we got out of it. We just focused on the people, what was real. We did not allow the beast to take control. And the first place that we focused on was our team. And I promise I'm not trying to say that 
caring about your team is somehow noteworthy. I understand that that's an obvious proposition. But what changed for us was the decision to make our team number one, ahead of revenue, ahead of even profits, and ahead of our customer. And there's so much written and so many great companies that we know that have made that similar decision, right? That have decided that to, they had to focus on their team first and foremost. That if they focused on their team's happiness and fulfillment and security, everything else would follow suit. In my new favorite book, new to me, not new, but brilliant, um, Bo Burlingham looks at these organizations that have been able to maintain their independence, their identity, their mojo, all these amazing things but still become really awesome, like really successful. And how did they get there? Like what about them is different? And what he realized was that no matter how much we know that you have to maintain an incredibly strong relationship with your customer, with your community, with your supplier, what comes as a priority to these small giants is that they pick their team as number one. Why? Because they're the ones doing the work, right? If you focus on your team first, they're the ones talking to suppliers and your customers and all those things, partnerships, all of that stuff. Our job is to provide a safe environment behind them, rally behind them so that they know that they can charge forward and make the company what it is today. So for the last couple of years, I've been saying like, oh, Wildbit exists for the team. And there's like this part of me that always felt some guilt around that. Like, wasn't that bad? <laughs> Shouldn't I focus on the customer first, the business exist to make something that a customer wants to buy, customers number one, all these things. But somehow for us, if we, for, for Chris and I, our, our priority is longevity, right? Sustainability, we won't want to be around for a long time. 17 years is no accident. And so for us, we've always looked at it and said, if we focus on the team first, that creates a future-proof organization. Markets change, customers' needs can and will change, right? But if we build a team that's committed to each other and not to just some product, then we'll build another product. Like if everything blew up tomorrow, if all four products died, I would be really sad. But if that happened, I am 100% confident that we would all sit together around a table and we would figure out what we were gonna do next together. Because that's what matters. Wild bit as a team is the important part. But how do you do that in practice? And for us, in Sorry. For us in practice, that meant we had to build an intentional culture. When I, when Chris, when I started working with Chris, I was, we were both really young, um, and we worked with a really young team, and culture was not something that we talked about. We didn't know that was a thing. Like that wasn't, all we cared about was paying our bills and answering customers, and that was it. And so I remember the very first time that the concept of team really started to kind of Take, you know, started to show up, and that was on our very first retreat in Cyprus, 2007. One of those people, not, well, two of those people in that picture still work here. One's Chris, that doesn't count, but Eugene still works here. Um, we were on this company retreat. We had never talked to each other, like video or with voice. We only chatted. It was like Yahoo chat or something. And so when we met, we didn't really expect it, but we had this really emotional kind of greeting. Like we were all really happy to see each other in real life. What had happened, unbeknownst to us, was that while we were building a product together, we were building Beanstalk, we had been building a team. People who really cared about each other, who cared about that, that mission and that kind of thing that we were building. It was really special. We spent, like, we, we cooked together, we ate, lunch, you know, we, we ate dinners together, we planned, we skipped, it was beautiful. It was really, really special. 
But I can't say that we went home and said like, okay, let's build a culture. A lot of our culture, sadly, I guess, really happened to us. And so one of the things that people really kind of applaud Wild, or you know, talk about Wild, uh, is that we have a very family-friendly culture. So we have like really great working hours. We have a you know a kids' room in the office. We do family happy hours, like that kind of stuff. But I can't tell you that like we set out to make it so. What really happened was our young team started to grow up. We started having you know finding partners, having children. Chris and I had our first daughter. Our priorities changed. It's like I don't want to work all night. I want to hang out with my kid. But that's not a good way to build a culture. Because what happens to everybody else? What happens to the people who are in different situations, right? Who don't have that? Or what if we hadn't had kids? Would we have been as understanding? And the beast, it doesn't really care about culture, because people are expensive. Culture, good, healthy culture is expensive. And I remember the first time the beast took, kind of tried to take control of our culture. And so in our trying to kind of get out of this dark time, figure out how to grow the business again, we started hiring a little bit faster than we normally would. And those new people come with new ideas and new ways of doing things and all this stuff. And before that, we didn't really have a lot of policies. We just kind of got our work done. So now there's all this stuff coming at us. And my gut reaction was to start policing everybody. I started writing policies. I was writing a policy a week at one point, And it was really miserable. I was chastising the, the whole team when one person did something I didn't like. Not my proudest moment. And so on the following company retreat, we all sat down. And I asked the team how they were doing. And it turns out I wasn't the only one who was not really into all the policy making. <laughs> who knew? And so we sat on this retreat. And we started to say, like, well, what, like, what happened? How did we get here? And we realized that we had never intentionally said what it was that made wild bit wild bit. What was our culture? How do we make sure that as we're hiring new people, we communicate that outwardly and ourselves internally? And so that's what we did. We decided to figure out like, what are Wildbit's values. And we said, like, let's write them down. And so at a table, right here, this is actually the table. Chris and I shut up and asked the team, what, do you, what does it mean to work at Wildbit? And we let them speak, clearly. And, uh, and they told us. And they, they wrote down, like, what is it that makes Wildbit Wildbit? What do we expect from ourselves? What do we expect of each other? What do we want to communicate to the other people who might want to come work here? How do we define our culture? And this, writing down our values, was the very first time that we took the t culture seriously and started really aiming all of our direction towards being team first. But it turns out that culture is actually really simple. It's just shared values and behaviors, if you believe Wikipedia. But that's it. It's just shared values and behaviors, right? It's not complicated. It's not ping pong tables. It's not this. I still don't know what this is. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. It's at Google, so it must be good. It's not bars. That's not culture. Those are perks, right? And culture is not the beer test. You guys all know what the beer test is? You hire a bunch of people for culture, but really, you're just hiring people you want to have a beer with, right? You're not going to build a good culture that way. Culture is just having shared values. But if you choose to run a business that focuses on your team first, you have to make sure that those values are healthy, right? That they do favor and do kind of do exist for the team that builds the products. How do you do that? Well, you ask yourself a second very important question. Why do people work? Why do they work for you? Like we had to really say, like, why are people working for why, why is, why are people working for us for a while? But, and I can only come up with two reasons. 
One is really romantic. <laughs> and the one we like to talk about as employers. People work for that fulfillment in their professional lives, right? They work for their careers. They work to be good at what they, to get better at what they do. They have a skill, they have a craft, they want to hone it, right? That's really important. And that's the one we all focus on and focus our values around. But there's a second one that I think is probably more important. And that's to enable a life outside of work, right? We work for hobbies. We work to send our kids to good schools, to buy houses, to take care of our parents, to go on vacation, to learn how to fly airplanes. We have people who are, we have pilots outside. <laughs> but that's, that's important, right? So if you want to build a culture and build a team that focuses on, on you want to build a company that focuses on your team, you have to make sure that you're making a decision between whether or not your team works to live or lives to work. And you build the values around that. And that's what we did, right? So we took our values, the team sat down at this table, we talked about what it meant to work at Wildbit. And we wrote them down, and we published them on the website. And they're here in all their glory. These are the 10 rules that define the way we work. You don't have to read, they are on the site. But they're bookmarked by two really, well, and they, they fall into one of those two categories. They're either there to enable that success in your professional life or to enable a life outside of work. That's why they exist. And their book ended by two reminders, one to myself and Chris, and one to the team. And the first one is that Wildbit is product agnostic and that we exist for our team. And we put that up there as number one because when the beast tries to take over and tries to convince us to move in other directions, we are reminded, first and foremost, right in front of our faces and for the rest of the world, why we exist. And the second one has a good story. On that same retreat where we sat down and started discussing all of these policies, Somebody in the team finally said, like, why are we doing this? At the end of the day, we're trying to fight against this, right? All this policy writing, the negative policy writing, was to try to avoid this. Do on to others. It's so simple, right? And so somebody said it, and then somebody said it again. And so don't be an asshole somehow became this <laughs> truly and honestly value number 10 for a while. <laughs> But we're a company, we have to have values, uh, policies, right? But we just make sure that all the policies that we have written and that we continue to write just back up those two values, or those 10 values and those two reasons for why people work. Policies like flexible working hours. Those pilots I was saying, we have two guys who got their private pilot's license. You are very much dependent on the weather to become a pilot. So if it's really nice at two o'clock in the afternoon, go fly a plane. Like we're not saving lives here, right? So allowing the team to have a life and a, and a career together, or even a life that works around the career, a career that works around the life is really important to us. We do profit sharing with the team. Obvious, right? Competitive salaries are obvious. Private offices, because if you want people to accomplish or achieve that success in their professional lives, they actually have to get work done. Um, and the way to get work done, you need actual quiet time. So everybody at Wild gets private offices, whether remote or in the office. And the best benefits that we can afford. I once did a, a talk about culture and somebody said like, I get it, you guys have a lot of money, but what about me, I don't have a lot of money. Well, we all just do the best you can, right? We can always do more. And so just focusing your benefits on being the most and the best that you can afford, and as you can afford more, you do better. And to focus on like the work that actually fulfills that team. What makes them enjoy coming to work? So when Beanstalk Plateau, we'd have to make some decisions. What do we do with a mature product 
that has thousands of customers who love it and adore it and use it, but it stops growing, right? It stops gaining more customers than it's losing. And so we have to look at it and say, like, can we get out of this? Can we get out of this plateau? Maybe some marketing, maybe some ads. We weren't really sure, but we could do it. We were competing against huge companies. Or we could ask ourselves, and the original team that built Beanstalk still with Wildbit today, and we asked them, if you were to build Beanstalk today, what would it look like? Well, I can assure you that it would not look like Beanstalk because the value, the value prop we are solving then is not the same problem that we are solving today, right? And so Chris and I had this decision to make. Do we take the kind of less risky approach of trying to get a, a mature product with an audience and all these things out of the plateau, but build something or ask the team to build something they weren't as excited about? Or do we take the higher risk, I would say, approach and build something brand new, but have the reward of a team that's working on something that they're crazy excited about and passionate about? So obviously, you know what we did. So we decided to build a brand new product. Um, and it might come out this century, I'm not sure, but you know. <laughs> it's coming, it's coming, I'm sorry, it's coming. Focusing on the team is important, but we can't forget that there's another party to building a company, and that is the founders. In that dark time, Chris and I forgot to ask ourselves what we wanted. Like, why were we here? What were those reasons of why we wanted to be business owners? and employers and all those things that come with it. So you have to, sometimes it's important to stop and make some decisions around like, what kind of business do you want to run in the first place? Oddly for us, we don't get a lot of really good options for some reason. Either be the lifestyle business, which I thought was a good thing, but apparently now has like all kinds of negative connotation. You have no aspiration to be bigger. Fine, whatever. But if I'm not choosing to just be a lifestyle business, which I don't really love that it's gotten this bad rep, but then my only other option, apparently, is to try to be this. I have to have 300% growth every year, or otherwise I'm dying, right? I have to 10x exits, billion dollar IPOs, whatever, but I, those are my options. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't really identify with either one of those. I think I'm just a business. Like, we're just regular business. I think a lot of us are just regular businesses, right? And there's nothing bad about that. That's actually really beautiful. Right? Profit-driven businesses are very nice, regular businesses. And they're not that unique to our industry. I don't know why we keep making stuff up, but if you go to an industrial park, you will see hundreds of businesses that have been around for dozens of years that are focused on profits and their team and making a product and selling it and all these things. They have the same problems we are. They are beholden to the same economic principles that we are. And before anybody says that SaaS businesses are very capital efficient, I know that. But other than that, and that's it, right? So determining that was the first step in saying, like, okay, well, what do regular businesses look like? Guess what? They have ups and downs and flat lines. It all happens. Because they are around for a long time. And when you're around for a long time, things change and things happen. And it became okay. I don't know why there's this misconception that entrepreneurs are supposed to suffer. Like, we're supposed to work these insane hours, unsustainable hours. We're not supposed to give ourselves anything back until the business makes it, whatever, I don't know what that means. We brag to our friends that we don't have time for books or to see them or to go to you know, baseball games or whatever. Like, why? We didn't design businesses that way. That's not why we came into running a business, right? So you have to look and you have to think, like, well, what does it mean to build something to sell it? 
that founder has to optimize for revenue, therefore spending as much as possible. Therefore, being, their salary being very much a decision of the beast, right? Can't pay yourself too much because the beast needs more because to grow faster, you need to put it all back into the business. That is a risky, risky option because then you're also building up debt. So these founders that are working all these insane hours that are suffering and struggling and trying to sell have so much debt that their only option is at the end of the rocket ship, right? That's the only way out, and we know what the statistics on that are. But let's say you do exit. What do you do with all that debt? I talk to so many founders who didn't pay themselves well all throughout building the business. Then maybe they sold it, but by the time they got out, they were miserable. They didn't make any money, but they did have a lot of really nice TechCrunch articles, so that was worth it. <laughs> Ooh, but what about this? That's what I'm building. A regular business that's built to keep this profit focused, right? has ups and downs, but a regular business that's profitable can, you know, let's take like basic SaaS metrics, like let's say you have a profit margin of 30%. A $3 million business will net the founder a million dollars a year, annually, for a long time, right? And I know there's ups and downs or whatever, but you're in control of that. And what's more is you're building an extremely lucrative asset. Because more and more we're seeing that there's a lot of interest in profitable, sustainable businesses. So if you do choose to exit, and we can talk about that later, you are, have a much better seat at the bargaining table than you do with the other one. And the risk is smaller. Because the beast is not interested in your lifestyle or what you want. He's so cute, I can't even, like, he doesn't even look mean. <laughs> the beast isn't interested in you and your lifestyle. The beast wants you to suffer. It wants you to struggle. It wants you to feed it. It wants to get fatter. But that's not why we got into this in the first place, right? So we have to tame the beast, turn it into a little kitty cat, so cute. And you have to take care of yourself. The more space you put, and I, by take, I mean pay yourself, the more space you put between financial, your financial security and the future of the business, the safer your business will be. Vulnerability happens when you're strapped, right? A lot of founders exit because they're strapped. They are tired, exhausted, and broke. And they look for that exit because that's the only option left. So your incentive to keep going is highly dependent on how much space you have between your financial stability, security, and what the business needs to do. You'll take on the right kind of risk at that time, but you'll be in control of it. <laughs> Jason said, I mean, it, it's I never want to advocate a certain lifestyle. I have a lot of friends who have exited, and I think it's okay. The important thing to do is that you exit because it's in, it's in it for you, right? You're doing it for yourself and not for the business. If it stops being fun, if it's not matching those reasons of why you started or why you want to run a business, and it's, it's okay to let it go. But you just have to make sure that you're letting it go for you and not for anybody else. So I'll tell you guys another story I've never told many people. But we get approached for acquisition, I don't know, a lot for me, probably not a lot for other companies. And we never really take the call. Um, and then one time, Somebody reached out who we actually really admired. And so we said, okay, we'll meet. And we sat down at the table and, you know, the proposition is, is basic, right? It's standard, but it's like, we're gonna come and acquire everything. We'll take away all the pain, HR, accounting, finance, whatever. And we'll give you all this money so you can take the product and you can make it huge. And he's like, okay, that's kind of cool. So, you know, after, you know, have sweaty palms, the whole like, you know, you're shaking, kind of left, we came home. 
we were like, wow, like we can do this, right? Like all the things we want to do in the product and all these things. And then when we finally when the adrenaline subsided, we started to say, well, okay, we just figured out why we want to run a business in the first place, so let's figure out if this is going to help. And there was a lot of financial incentive to take this deal. But would we be in control? No matter what they promise you. And would we have fun going to work? No. <laughs> like there was no way any of those other things would have actually happened had we taken the deal. And then why grow faster in the first place? Like we were profitable, making enough money to sustain us and the team and do things our way. There was no reason to feed the beast. There was no reason the product had to get any bigger than what it was currently. But at no point in this kind of catharsis did we say we weren't going to grow. We really want to grow the company for a lot of reasons, but we really, really, really want to grow. The only difference is that doing that work meant that we got to do it a little bit differently. We got to change the way we, or the reasons for why we grow. We got to grow with intention. Right now, because I know what I want, I can say how fast I want to grow. I want to grow to sustain the team and the culture that we built. I want to grow for the team, right? So I want to make sure we can only grow as fast as we can maintain all of those things that we've built to make sure that the team is fulfilled professionally and personally. I get to grow the way I want to, and that's really exciting. So the best example I have of that in recent time is Postmark. We in that, you know, decided to build Conveyor, and at the same time we said, let's ramp up Postmark. You know, we're in a really competitive space, but the product is spectacular and people love it. Let's spend some effort and energy and make some changes. And the first thing we did was we ended up hiring front of the house, I call it front of the house, but basically marketing, sales, uh, not really sales, but marketing, product management, all these roles that our engineering company basically had never had. And it worked. Who knew? Well, it worked. We were able to actually say, like, oh, we can be in control of our growth in a way that's sustainable. And we were able to kind of take something that was kind of putzing along and move it up. But how we grow is still a decision that we make consciously every day. In 20, uh, January of this year, we said, like, okay, what's our marketing strategy for this year? And it seemed like everybody was going all in on content, like everybody. But I just couldn't think that I'd like jump out of bed in the morning if my team wrote another 17 ways to better transactional email blog posts. Like I just, if there's nothing wrong with it, it's just not, it's not gonna do it for me, right? And it's not gonna do it for the team that I've hired. So instead we said like, well what is it that gets us out of bed? What gets us excited? And for us right now, that's making those really personal relationships with customers and potential customers. And that's what we did. We went all in on making those relationships. So we started doing outbound sales, but instead of spray and pray, and I bet my inbox looks like a lot of yours, it's full of garbage, we said, like, why don't we do something that makes an impact? We started, these are packages that go to outbound prospects that we hand select, so we don't just buy lists or whatever, blah, blah, blah. We actually go and we pick companies that we really want to use Postmark, that we like really respect. It's a tremendous amount of work. And then we design these awesome packages. We handwrite notes. It is not scalable by any stretch. But the no's we get from that are so positive. We get, we get so many no's, but they're great, right? Like, those people are like, I don't need it right now, but I love you guys. Thank you. And there's plenty of yeses, too. Like, it's not that it, but it's amazing, right? We made a personal relationship with somebody. We went into their mailbox, not an inbox, and they don't get anything in there anymore. And we started going to, we started going to conferences. 
But like, sponsoring conferences is one thing. You can send a lot of money to a lot of places, and they put your logo up, and that's a sponsorship. But you're not making a connection there, right? You're hoping somebody Googled it while they're sitting there. What we said is like, well, we want to actually shake hands, and we want to hear your story, and we want to tell our story, and we want to understand what your pains are and try to solve them. And so we started selling, sending entire delegations to conferences. Not scalable, crazy expensive, but it works. Like, we made amazing connections with people, people who still email in like, hey, I saw Merrick at the conference, he's awesome, like, want to come, you know, all this stuff, that's real. And that makes us happy, and that allows us to grow at a rate that works for us. I'm sure that I could hire a really brilliant marketing person who would come in a while bit and tell me all the ways we're doing it wrong and all the better ways we can do it going much more traditional routes. Like, I'm positive, right? The thing is that coming to this conclusion means I don't have to do it any other way other than what makes us happy. And so we don't need that, right? I don't care. I don't need to grow faster. I need to grow, but I want to do it because it's what I want and it, because it's going to sustain myself and my team. Entrepreneurs, I think, are very stubborn. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, stubborn and committed to doing things the way we want to do it. Like We're not really content with what the status quo is, and at least like the entrepreneurs that I really respect. And so I think we have no excuse not to do it for those reasons why we set out to do it in the first place. Our big kind of change, our big shift, how we were able to grow again and be happy and find our like better place was when we consciously and explicitly decided to make choices, right? We were intentional. It's just for Chris and I, those choices meant focusing on ourselves and on our team. And we totally stopped serving the business. It serves us, right? That's why we created it. More importantly, probably, it serves these people. <laughs> that's my team. Like, that's why the business exists, for them. And those are all their hobbies, actually. And it's, like, really special. And it serves me and Chris. Because, like, we built it for ourselves, right? We built it so that we could be happy, so that we could have financial security. We, it, we do not serve it. We do not need to suffer. We do not need to struggle. So hopefully with those new found conclusions or understanding that our goal, Chris and I, is to make sure that we never forget that the business is not real and just focus on those two really important pieces and then you know, we'll be around for another 17 years. Thanks. Right, fantastic. Questions? You wave your hands at me and I'll get a mic to you. Who's going first? Here, please. Thank you. Absolutely wrapped by that. Thank you, Natalie. Um, Bo Burling and Small Giants is one of my favourite books. When we moved from the seaport to the Intercontinental in 2012? Yeah. Um, and we had 650 people at the event. I um, stood up on the stage in the morning and I was like, no. I can't see people in the corners of the room. It didn't feel right. And I read that book on the flight on the way home. And that's why we decided not to get bigger. It's life, I mean, that um, book's... And shrink it yeah. down. Still do with a few more people in the seats, though, so I'll come to that later on. <laughs> um, right, have I filled some time to get a mic somewhere? I've got it. Um, so how do you help 
people who have been effectively eaten by the beast, who won't go home at night, who won't take vacation, who are certain that they do have to sacrifice themselves to the volcano gods of growth. Uh, like how, how can you get through to them when they are so convinced that the health of the business and the ability for the business to continue is dependent on them killing themselves? Are you talking about employees or like other founders? Other founders. Uh, so my father. The babe, the one says yeah. like it's their baby. My father runs a very large business and is that person. Like he, bra oh, I have, can't, I, I, I'm too busy. I can't get through to him, that'll never happen. But I think, um, I don't know, I, this maybe, like right, like I think more examples of why it's better and why, or why it can work, I don't wanna say better, but why it can work, I think is really important. We, I talk to friends who are in similar situations and we start sharing more, right? We start talking about it. I think the proof has to be there, I understand that. And I think that's what we really try to do. I, I mean, that, there's a lot of personality that's responsible for the people who do think like, I just have to grow at all costs. And I think sometimes we get into a point where we're so convinced because we've given up so much at this point that it's really hard to, con like we just psychologically can't get out of it, right? Like we'd have to admit to ourselves that we've been doing it wrong this whole time. There was a Twitter rant with DHH, obviously. Um, and <laughs> no, somebody, and I, you know, I don't, somebody posted like a job posting and it was basically like, you guys saw this like work, we, our company has great worth at work ethic. It's not unusual to see people working 70 hours a week. Yeah. And um, I started reading the comments, which is always a good idea. And there were a lot of people there that like, you're just lazy, that's the way I've been doing it my whole life. That's how I got here, now I run three businesses. And like you have to like, it's not worth engaging with that I think to some degree because there's a lot of like, I've put it in for so long, how could I be wrong this whole time? So I, I don't really try to engage in that, but I think the more we tell good stories, positive stories about how it does work, you can be profitable, you can be really successful doing it that way. I think hopefully encourages others to try it. Actually, that 70-hour, I mean, this is a really good point. I was trying to find that when you were talking, but the, I would say your business is so boss, and the anti-boss business is Uber for me. Um, I hate them. Um, <laughs> they have this work hard, you get paid on paper, you get share options, they sack a bunch of people 11 months and 28 days or whatever into their tenure because they can get the options back and they recycle it. And there's, it's so in the interests of so many different bits of the ecosystem to push this work relentlessly hard. Um, don't be suckered into it. If you want to do that and that's what you're happy about, fab. But, yeah. sorry to... No, no. I don't get me on an Uber rant. Um, <laughs> yeah. Natalie, um, in, in the beginning, there, you need that, that drive, that 70-hour work ethic, whatever yeah. it is. I'm wondering, did, did you make this, um, if you were to advise people on when to start thinking about that transition, right, to that, the, the saner approach to running a business, right, uh, is that something that you would say right up front or once they get to a certain point? literally just had this discussion. No, I think there's, a, there's two distinctions there, right? There's the one where I don't think any founder is, I don't think it's acceptable for any founder to expect or require 70 hours a week from their employees from day one. 
So there, I have no, the, I understand that some people want that, and you know, there's a lot of industries, not just ours, right? Like the lead, but yourself, right? So, no, I mean, you work hard. And I think that's personal, right? I think you work hard and you do what you need to do, but you don't want to burn out. So you have to kind of find that middle ground. And always asking yourself why you're doing this, I think, is the critical part. Like, you're, we had kids, right? And we were like, why are we doing this, right? So you have to start kind of constantly asking yourself, What's important? What's the sacrifice that I'm making? And just being honest and real with yourself, and I think it varies. I would absolutely say when you start having a family, it's probably an important point to start figuring out what you're doing, you know? And also just looking and saying, like, am I missing out on hobbies and other things that I really want to do, and can I find a middle ground there? Do I have to work as hard? I don't think I could give you, like, a, you know, on day 75, you have to start working 40 hours. Although we only work 32 hours, for the record. We don't work 40 hours, the whole company. But. Just before that other question, quick show of hands. Who's ever left a company and went, do you know what, I should have spent more time working at that company? No, quick, hands up. Uh, one. Who's ever left a company and gone, do you know what, half the time I was working, I was wasting my time? Mm. That's why Motion we're, carried. That's why four-day work weeks. But that's, yeah. yeah. Question here. Alexis. Yes, thank you. Um, first of all, thank you so much for being here and for this talk. Uh, my question centers around both age and empathy. So it seems like a lot of what you're talking about is capacity to empathize with the folks that you're working with. And I look around the room, I'm probably in the minority of folks who are 30 and under here, and there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about people my age or in my generation or millennials, blah, 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 blah. But the question is, you mentioned your team, you started to see these things and have these experiences together. And would you have advice for kind of bridging those generational gaps so that folks can see and understand and empathize across those lines and realize that it isn't just the generation complaining or saying they need this flexibility or whatever. Like it really is about living a healthy life and a life that would make you want to be with a company or stay with a company. I'm a millennial too, just for the record. So, uh, I, yeah. Um, so, I, I have a friend who works for a consulting firm that helps law firms, and apparently, law firms are having all this trouble recruiting new lawyers to big firms because these lazy millennials don't want to work 90-hour weeks for some hopeful <laughs> reaching of partnership, right? And they were, they had, it was such a bad problem that they actually were going to have a panel of millennials in other industries come down and speak to these law firms to explain to them, like, no, they're not lazy. They just realized that the way our parents did it, they believed that a life was work, that that's what it existed for, right? That a person should achieve all of their fulfillment from their career. And everything else was secondary. And we, because I'm a millennial, <laughs> have started to realize, like, no, that's not the case, right? And, and so I think, like, more and more of those discussions, we don't talk, like, that's not what we don't say, like, you know, we just, we just kind of look at it and say, like, what's important to you? And I think on any side of that, if you ask somebody that honestly, like, they wouldn't say working 90 hours a week. Like, they might say, I really want to reach this level, you know, in my work, or I really want to accomplish this those things that can then be looked at and say, like, well, how can we accomplish that in a rational way? But nobody's going to say, like, I can't wait to get this job so I can work 90 hours a week. So we're just trying to ask people, like, why do they work? What do you want to accomplish? Where do you want to go? And then taking that and saying, like, my job as an employer is to say, okay, how do I get you here? And you look at the personal and the professional equally, right? Not just the professional part. Hmm. 
Jonathan, just sorry, to Oh, no, beg pardon. You, sir. Hi, Natalie. Um, your team first sort of philosophy really resonated with me. I'm just wondering how you kind of combine that with what if there are performance issues or if somebody might not be a good fit? It's never happened. Um, oh, goodness. Uh, well, I, I fire very late. I'm very proud of it. Um, part of it is I've learned over the years that we have to set expectations better, right? So we have gotten better at hiring that I don't have to fire as much as I did at one point. But I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. So we work really hard to get to a point where we mutually understand. Like, it's not going to be a surprise to anybody. I'm also, as I'm, we're flat. We don't have any man, like, it's just me and Chris. And so I, as a people, like, I'm very, uh, I'm not passive aggressive. Like, I'm very open and communicative and very obvious. Uh, so I always tell my team, like, Believe me that you'll know how I'm feeling, right? Like we will have a very open dialogue. So I'm very expressive and very much tell people when it's not working, like not, not working out, but when things are wrong so that we can try to right the ship as much as we can. But I mean, yeah, we have to fire people. I mean, it, it's just, but usually I look at it like the last person we had to let go, it was better for them too. Like they were really unhappy, right? So like that was like a mutually ne necessary thing. Did that answer your question? Yeah, okay. Um, I thought I thought your I thought your presentation was pretty um, refreshing because so I like I've actually like been an entrepreneur myself and it was really bad for me to the point where like I got kicked out of the VC firm that I was working out of because I was sleeping there. Um, so I think one of the so I'm curious like if you if you would agree that. Like, I think one thing that a lot of people, um, a lot of entrepreneurs don't think about is actually how much it actually affects your health. Because um, I actually ended up getting burnt out to the point where I was like, um, I couldn't function for like at least three weeks. Like, I was just like in bed and just couldn't function, couldn't get up to go eat. Like, I, it got really horrible. And my dad is an entrepreneur and he's kind of the same way that you described as your, as your dad. And my dad now, he's like constantly going to the hospital, constantly dealing with dizziness, all types of stuff. Um, I'm curious if you think that's, because I think that's a major issue I've noticed, like people kind of like take the health thing very, like they don't, they take it very lightly until it becomes really bad. Like, and for me, like it became really bad to the point where I was like, okay, I just need a job. <laughs> and yeah. I, all those, I mean, that like, you know, we martyr ourselves and it comes in everything, right? Like our time with our families, our own health, like all those things, right? It's, it's the collective, I think health, is not, you know, it's not the only thing we give up, but it's absolutely a very significant one. And like mental health right now, we talk about it all the time, but how important is mental health to even just being a successful founder to begin with, right? Like a successful business owner. If you don't give yourself space to think, you're not gonna move the business forward, but we don't give ourselves any space to think because we're so damn busy. So it's like, I think all of that kind of collectively, if we stop to ask ourselves like, what are we doing to move the, you know, to move the business forward and to move ourselves forward, Personally, it would probably health would be a big one that we're definitely letting go of. Thanks so much for uh, for the talk uh, back up, up here. Where am I? Oh, sorry. Hi. Hi. The lights really bright. Um, in terms of the philosophy that you talked about, I think what's really interesting, uh, a lot of it applies to being a bootstrap company because you don't have anyone else in your your cap table who may sort of have different incentives. Right. How can you embody some of sort of the ideas that you've presented? when you are a VC back firm? Because a lot of startups may not necessarily know what that means and might even have to take a seed round or even just a smaller round to start, but once you do that, you're sort of on this path. 
So how do you adjust or how do you try to embody what you've presented today? I have no idea. <laughs> no, I mean, because it's counter to, I mean, it's a great question because you're right and it's not fair. I didn't really like, this is definitely a very one-sided conversation because you have other people who have a seat at the table and they are not interested in, they are the beast, right, to some degree, because that's what they care about. And so I don't know, I mean, I could imagine if your performance is really good, you could start convincing them that these are the ways that you're supposed to run a business, but I don't, I think once you're on that ride, you kind of, I don't know, honestly, I've never seen it happen, but um, I think that's why a lot of founders leave once they're, uh, once everything's cleaned up, and so I don't, I don't know, I'm sorry. Thank you at the front here. Sir. Hey, Natalie. Um, I work for a company that just Wait, wants hold on, where right here. Oh, there you are. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. sorry. sorry. <laughs> From the booming. No, no. Um, okay. I work for a company that just wants to be a company. So I think this was really awesome and it resonated, I think, with us. Um, the question I have so we've gone through the whole process of mission, vision, values, and we wrote our values down and we talked to them as a leadership team. We talk about them every quarter, um, but they're on a piece of paper. And we have these values that we think are important to us. The question I have for you is, how did you take that set of values that you guys wrote down, and how did you make that actually resonate and turn that into culture? Do you bring it up? Do you have other um, ideas, or do you have suggestions on how you really turn those into culture? Yeah, I think the first one was that we didn't write them down. The team did. And I think that is a really, really important distinction. There's a, a company in Philadelphia that got a new CEO and hired a consulting firm who came in and wrote down the values of the company. That resonated really well with the employees. Um, our values, I mean, so they, because they happened so late, like our values were basically defining what we thought we wanted or, or what we were, I guess, right? Values are current. Um, and then they come up in conversation pretty, like don't be an asshole comes up all the time. I mean, it's, and not in a ha-ha, but in like, we use that in, in a lot of the places. Be practical is another big one that like we talk about. So they do come up in conversation, and we review them as a team. So on the last retreat, I think, that we were on, we sat down together, we read them out loud, and we said, all right, how we stand on these? You know? And then, the, again, the team talks. Like Chris and I kind of just listen. We you know, provide feedback where we need, and we probably wordsmith a little bit. But we let the team kind of say, like, what, what, where are we right now? And actually, in that retreat, it used to be that our customer was number one, and on that retreat we moved team product agnostic to number one because we all agreed that that was the priority right now. And so that's kind of how it shifts. Did that answer your question? Yes, I think so. Um, okay. The fact that you bring them up, I think, in conversation yeah. is good, and that probably means that leadership needs to do a little bit more to remember those things and bring those things up more frequently. Um, I just don't think that's happening with us. It's We review it every quarter. We take a look at, oh, yeah, these things still resonate. Right. Or we should tweak this one, and then it dies. Yeah, I mean, I think to us, too, like it, it's a reminder to me. So 50% of my job is team. So like I've made that a conscious, implicit decision that like as long as if I know that like 50% of my time is focused on the team, then I will not forget that that's an important part of our values, right? Because I think there's like a lot of that making sure that we're, we're bringing that into the actions. And a lot of it's for me and Chris to make sure that we are con constantly focused on those things that the team has said to us, this is what makes Wildbit special. And in hiring, it's the first thing I do when, I, when I'm interviewing and onboarding, I get on the phone or on calls with remote teams and I literally read every single value. And I explain every re like all the ways that we got to these values. And I like, we don't do a test, but that's as close as we get it. And like I make them sit there and listen to me speak, but I explain why they all exist. Thank you. Yes, here, halfway up the back. Th thanks for a great talk. The, I think we talked a little bit about self-care, right, on the founder side. 
Um, I think we all understand what the beast is asking of us. Um, but you, you've alluded to a number of times the importance of and some of the lead-ins to how to take care of the team and how to have a structure that, if, if not puts them absolutely first, is at least putting them in the front row, right? Um, it, it, I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate a bit on how it is that you take care of the team that way, beyond the statement that it's, it's an important thing to do and the values that lead into it, but some, I don't know, some actions that you've taken yeah. that you found to be particularly helpful. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's the policies, right, the things that we do, but I think it's the, uh, I think an employer's job is to create secure, like, to focus on your team, you have to create, like, security around them, right? Like, I always believe that, I never want anybody going home worried about their place in the company, their relationships with other employees, especially when you're a remote team, that can get kind of hairy sometimes. So in action, that means that I'm very much, like that's their mental safety and security, right? Like I want them to go home and like be free of wild bit. Like I want them to do their things. So we make sure that there's no passive aggressiveness across the team itself, that we're always very communicative and very open. I'm always like having very personal, emotional conversations with the team, right? Like I spend a lot of time doing that. Our one-on-ones are not structured. Our one-on-ones are literally, how you feeling? Like what's going on? You know, and I'll have somebody's like, I'm not sleeping. I'm like, all right, let's figure out like what, you know, is it work and then, you know, and that kind of thing. And that security I think is like the main framework so that the team knows that everything's okay. And then you can build policies and all those things around it. But you know, same thing with like the, the stability of the company. We do profit sharing, I show P&L, right? It's like front and center, the good, the bad. We talk about the bad, we're very open about it. And we create like, everybody goes home and says, all right, we're not in a great spot right now, but we're on it, right? We're working on it. And then they feel safe, they feel secure. And then you kind of build up everything around it. But policies and benefits, like you just build as you go, right? You just, every chance I get, it's like, what more can we do, right? Like we pay 100% health insurance. I keep saying like, I'll do it until my, <laughs> the premium gets out of hand and, and it does it. And then when it did, we switched to carriers. You know, it's just constantly kind of looking at that and saying like, how can I fill in with the benefits and the policies and all these things to make sure that we're always asking the team first. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.